Hi there, and welcome again to the Community Broadband Bits podcast from the Institute for Local Self-Reliance. I'm Lisa Gonzalez. Christopher Mitchell interviews Blair Levin, the executive director at Gig.U, a project of the Aspen Institute Communications and Society Program. Blair was executive director of the effort that led to the National Broadband Plan. He was also chief of staff for the FCC during the Clinton administration. Blair has worked as an attorney and a Wall Street analyst. Chris and Blair talk about different approaches in the drive to bring ubiquitous access to America. Each model, whether centered on public or private ownership, has advantages and drawbacks. They delve into the similarities and the unique challenges of each. Here are Christopher and Blair. Um, thank you for joining us for Community Broadband Bits today. We're talking with Blair Levin, the executive director of Gig.U. Thank you for coming on the show. Uh, happy to be here, Chris. Can we start by getting a, a sense of what Gig.U is? Sure. Uh, Gig.U is a uh, project of the Aspen Institute Communications and Society Program. Uh, we're about three dozen university communities, re- research university communities, who came together to try to see if we can accelerate the deployment of next generation networks uh, to support education uh, and e- uh, economic development. Um, and in other words, we were trying to see if if Google in Kansas City was an example of the supply side holding a competition uh, for the demand side, 1,100 communities competing to get that fiber. We wanted to see what communities could do to increase the ability of the supply side to provide next generation networks or fiber not just to one community and not just from one provider, but to multiple communities with the thought that research university communities are particularly well-suited for that for that mission. We had submitted a uh, response when originally, I believe the, one of the first things you did was you went out and asked um, anyone who wanted to submit some ideas as to how communities could do this. Right. Um, our response was that we thought communities could do this um, on their own effectively by recognizing where the needs were and starting to make some investments. And we're we're very supportive of partnerships and that sort of thing. So uh, this is a it's an open ended approach from what I'm seeing. Right. And we got about 60 responses to that request for information back in the fall of 2011, and that has driven a lot of other activities by communities. And we greatly appreciate the thoughtful response you guys gave us and um, the communities all read it and uh, people are proceeding in a variety of different ways. Uh, we're going to be talking mostly about Gig.U over the course of this conversation, but I did want to ask you quickly uh, how you responded to Chairman Janikowski's uh, what's being called the Gigabit Challenge. Well, well actually, uh, ironically, I was meeting with a bunch of communities who were talking about how can they get a gigabit network in their communities, and suddenly my BlackBerry starts going off with a bunch of texts and messages uh, asking me what I thought of the chairman's um, speech to the, uh, I guess it was the League of Cities or the Conference of Mayors. And my a thought was actually to remember an old Talmudic line that if you are planting a garden and someone comes to you and says the Messiah has arrived, keep planting the garden. And so I turned my BlackBerry off and just kept going with the meeting. I I like the speech directionally. I, I'm obviously very supportive of the notion, which, by the way, was expressed in the National Broadband Plan, which is almost three years old now, that we need a critical mass of communities um, with not just good connectivity but the best connectivity in the world. And I'm very glad the chairman has uh, joined um, in articulating that. It's very important that he do so. The question to me is, what does the FCC 
do about it. The FCC is an agency with immense powers um, in a variety of different ways, and I'd love to see them actively engaged in the pursuit of this goal and not just simply saying others should do it. Yeah, that was um, it's a it's a terrific um, response to it. I my first response was um, was to say that it's terrific to see the FCC recognizing the value of these networks, but it seems somewhat of a slap in the face for um, some to say, well, yeah, you should go build these networks, and we're not going to use any of our power to make it easier or more feasible for you to do so. Um, so I really hope we see more engagement. Yeah, you know, it remains to be seen. Yeah, I mean, they're going to hold some workshops and hopefully they'll invite the right people and they'll have a very robust conversation. And they'll look at hopefully they'll look at policies, not just at cities and not just at states, but federal policies that can be utilized to make it so. So I want to I want to start the conversation back toward the gig.u and um, and I want to start by focusing on a lot of the things that we uh, have agreed with. I think uh, you have a pretty good sense of, of our focus on encouraging yeah. networks that are directly structurally responsive to the community. Um, you know, I think we, we both agree that there is a real problem with uh, investment in next generation networks in many areas. You know, I, I, I think we're both worried about a future in which a few companies dominate nationally um, this, uh, this service. Uh, are there other things that you think that, that we should just make sure we, we, we note that we agree on before we talk about things that <laughs> we may have a slightly different point of view? Well, here, here's the way I would say, Chris, and I've, I've followed your work and the work at the Institute for a long time and, and deeply respect it and, and very much admire it. I'm not one who believes that I know all the answers or that there's, there's a single way to achieve anything. I also think that there's a certain, you know, I've been in this field for about 20 years, and there's a certain cyclicality to it, you know. Them that were first shall be last, and them that were last shall be first. And you know, at different points in time, you need different responses, both in the market and in, in government. So it's never one size fits all forever. Um, I think that to me, the fundamental issue is that the telephone industry, which was a voice industry, arose with a certain kind of social contract, which was fundamentally we give you a monopoly, you give us universal service. The the um, cable industry arose with a social contract known as local franchise agreements, which was fundamentally you give us multi-channel video distribution and um, and we'll give you a monopoly, but you've got to serve everybody, again, universal service. Those fundamental social contracts then led those networks to be the primary broadband providers, but the social contracts don't really apply anymore. And what we have is a system where we have public, privately financed, which I like, uh, systems that produce a number of public benefits or public goods. And the challenge for us is in a very different economy with very different needs and very different technologies, how do we continue to get those public benefits in a very different world? And and I think that tactically you and I may disagree. I think we're trying to get to the same place, which is a, you know, a robust world of faster, cheaper, better broadband for everyone that allows people to do in a world where you know the economy is being run over broadband <laughs> to do what they want to do to educate themselves to have better health care uh, to have better government services and to have a robust and growing economy right i i think that's right if i would describe a slightly different way what you have moved forward with gig.u i think yeah. you've said well, where can we start to see some real investment in networks? And you've gone to uh, the research universities and said, well, yeah. this is a place where there's a tremendous um, business case potentially. And and you've opened it up to say, or you've encouraged communities to 
work together on a framework that allows them to uh, attract investors or attract uh, partners. Um, so what I'm a little bit concerned about is that, not that we'll see it everywhere, or even in the majority of places, but I think that approach um, could lead to what's called often skimming the cream, which is mm-hmm. um, that you may see some service providers want to invest in those very lucrative areas, but then will not have an interest in investing elsewhere. And I'm, I'm curious if you've wrestled with that uh, potential problem. Every community that I've dealt with wrestles with it. Uh, I think it's a, it's a serious issue. Um, I will just make a couple of quick points though. Number one, the reason we went to gig.u was not because the research universities are wealthier, but because they are more uh, bandwidth intensive. The thought was when 1,100 communities applied for Google Fiber, which I thought was fantastic and, and actually somewhat unexpected. Um, you know, by the way, you know, in the national broadband plan, we we said we really want to have this critical mass of communities with world-leading networks, but we didn't have a good idea of how to do it. Google stepped up and said we'll do it, and then when 1,100 communities applied, I started thinking. Wow, that's fantastic. But we don't need 1,100 communities to kind of light the fire to see what the next generation can bring. But we do need a dozen. We don't need, we don't, <laughs> one is not enough. So if you look at it that way, you might say, which communities have two things? Number one, the easiest economics, high density, high demand, high uh, a level of existing network assets. And that, the answer to that one, of course, is university communities. And then you say, which communities are going to be the most innovative to kind of, shall we say, you know, it's that early adapter phase where you want people really using it. I mean, give me a gig. I, I'm, I'm, what am I going to do? Watch movies faster? Give my kids gigs? They might do something interesting with it. So university communities have always been the most innovative places for these networks. So that's why we went. We, we wanted to do that. It's not about wealth as much as it is about innovation and about simple economics. Right, and actually, I, I did, I did mean that's how I've understood it. And so, if I was unclear, I'm sorry. No, no problem. But, but I think that every single community that we, that we've dealt with, uh, that we've worked with, asks the question: you know, is this going to be in some places but not others? And I think if you look at that, that's a political decision, which is really important. So, if you look at the projects that we've done or that we've been involved with, and again, GigDaddy itself is never a party to a deployment, but we are a learning community where people. Uh, can come together. So, for example, in the city of Chicago, uh, the University of Chicago and the, and the state uh, have a project which, in fact, is serving some underserved areas. That was just, they, they wanted to make sure that happened. So it's not just about a gig. It's about upgrading the network for the whole community around the University of Chicago. city of Seattle, um, when they did uh, their project, which was announced in December, they made certain kinds of policy choices to upgrade some communities that are not simply about uh, having a gig to um, the most kind of what you might think of as the most bandwidth hungry uh, parts of the community. And then there are other cities, you know, for example, the city of Chicago itself did an RFI that in in some ways was modeled off the RFI that we did, uh, but I think they did a really good job of defining what is it that the city wants that is a little bit different. They, they asked for some, they wanted to do some gigabit zones, but they also, also uh, were trying to upgrade networks in certain poor communities. So I think that that's a, that's, a, that's, a, that's a situation that every city or community has to grapple with. I will note that uh, there was one community that, I, that I've talked to um, that wanted to, very much wanted to be involved with Gig.U and is a member, um, that is a 
largely African-American city. Um, and I said, look, you know, I'm not, I cannot guarantee that whoever does this will bring it everywhere. And they said, look, one of the things you've told us is how important this is for hospitals and doctors. And the hospital in our community is the single biggest employer, and that helps attract better doctors and, and you know, more people uh, to work here, then we're, we're totally for it. And so I think there are just these trade-offs. The fundamental thing, and this is where I think you and I both agree, is cities should recognize that broadband is part of the destiny of their city. In other words, just as access to railroads was at a different time or access to roads were at a different time or access to electricity, access to a certain kind of broadband is going to dramatically affect the destiny of the city. And if cities want to be part of the big bandwidth revolution that's on the horizon, uh, they will have to do certain things to make sure that big bandwidth comes their way. I think that one of the things that I, w I was just reminded of is that we, we both recognize the political dimensions of this and we're both in strong agreement that um, these decisions need to be made at a local level. And uh, I know that you've, um, uh, in recent years, you've been a strong um, opponent of any sort of uh, state regulations to preempt local authority. Um, but I think one of the things that, that worries me about a gig dot, about a, an approach that many of the gig.u cities have taken uh, is that I'm not sure what kind of political decision they'll be able to make down the line when they don't really have any measure of control over the assets. And yeah. so if, uh, you know, if you have a, let's just say uh, my city to avoid picking on anyone, which is not a gig.u city, if we had St. Paul partnering with a, a local company, which I would hope would be the outcome if it was to be a private company, um, you know, you, you have a situation where the city makes it really easy and, and tries to bring people to the table and builds a business case. And then the private company may invest the money and then ultimately have ownership. And then they're going to be the ones that decide where the network goes, on what terms. And that's where, you know, for us, it's not about just necessarily running a network. We, quite frankly, don't really care if the city runs the network or not. Private providers have done a terrific job working with cities in Princeton, Illinois, Indianola, um, Iowa, a number of other places. Um, but we want to make sure that if there's um, that, that this is essential infrastructure that if the city then decides in five years, well, this really isn't reaching all the neighborhoods we want it to, that the city has a means of then making sure it does reach those areas aside from just begging. Yeah. Well, look, I, there are trade-offs to any system that you use. There are different incentives that provide, um, you know, are there, there are different ways of structuring a transaction to provide incentives to do certain things. And I think that, um, you know, these are, I wouldn't say they are easy decisions. I think you and I honestly and honorably probably disagree on where we would um, draw some of those lines. I think you want to emphasize city control, not necessarily managerial control, but you want to keep the options. There are trade-offs, so that then reduces the incentive to invest in a network, which is not certain, right? I mean, um, you know, when Google went into Kansas City, they did not get a right to a monopoly in the same way that Time Warner got a right to a monopoly when it's got its cable franchise. So there are there are significant differences, and if you cut off the uh, incentives, you at least initially hurt the investment, but you get the benefit, as you say, of controlling things down the road. I'm very much in the mode of the, and the part of the reason we started Gigot U was when we were working on the National Broadband Plan, what we saw was 
that whereas America had benefited enormously from a competition between cable and telcos on both price and network functionality over about a 15-year period uh, of driving wireline broadband improvements, that the network functionality part of that uh, competition was kind of ending, and that uh, for the first time since the beginning of the commercial Internet, there was no national wireline provider who was saying, I'm going to build a better network than the current best network, um, and that that wasn't going to get us where we needed to go. I want to see a lot of experimentation. I don't know what in the long term is right. I used to be, by the way, a municipal bond lawyer, and I'm a deep believer in the power of cities in part because they just are so much closer to the they, – they may make mistakes, but they are closer to the, the voters in a lot of different ways, and, and therefore they're less likely to make big mistakes. Right. We like to, we actually like to say that um, the, the public ownership isn't necessarily um, the right to get it right the first time, but it's the right to correct mistakes. Yeah, um, and so I, you know, I see that. I tend to think that in in the nature of this business, and and this is where it's tricky. There's a lot of gray area. Like I said at the beginning, we have a most of the systems in this country are privately financed, but we expect a certain kind of public external benefits to come from them. They're, this isn't like a McDonald's. There, uh, though, ironically, McDonald's is providing the Wi-Fi for a lot of uh, kids to do their homework in these days. But um, it's it's a different kind of thing. And I think we all struggle for what's the right balance between public control and private control. And the more public control you have, the more you can address certain issues, but the more you cut off the incentive to invest privately. So I like the models that so far the gig.u communities have done. There are risks down the road that you identify. I think that anyone who I think if you believe you can eliminate all risks, you're working in a world that I don't know <laughs> and I've never right. lived in. But I do think you I think you can have a transaction that uh, does produce community benefits in a way that's very beneficial. Yeah, we we do understand why Seattle and Chicago have opted to go with a gig.u approach rather than just you know, either bonding for uh, a massive project up front or just finding the cash to do an incremental project. Uh, right. There's certainly um, these local officials have to do a lot of um, soul searching, I think, as to their priorities. And then there's just the simple fact that many of these investments uh, will take longer than an election cycle. And that's sort of an Achilles heel of dealing with local governments, which is that, you know, they if it's going to take five years to build a network to see real results, then there's an incentive to not really do that because you may not uh, get the benefits of, of that investment. I, I, I think that's right. And I, I do think it's very, very tricky. And there's also a, a managerial problem, which is how do you, you know, these are very complicated businesses to run. Uh, customer service is difficult. How do you get the talent uh, to do that well? Um, it doesn't always work in a government structure. Uh, what's interesting is I think people really misunderstand the Kansas City deal with Google. Um, because a lot of people think that Kansas City gave them all these things. But here's the thing Kansas City didn't give Google. It didn't spend any tax dollars. Um, it didn't subsidize them. It didn't say, we'll pay you money to do this. That's, um, um, that's a really interesting and important thing. It also uh, it really allowed Google to experiment with the business model. And I think that's really valuable. Now, interestingly, and this goes back to an earlier point you said, the incumbents are now arguing this universal service point. 
and I think it's a fair argument, and I think we have to ad- address it um, 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 you know, clearly. I'm totally in favor of making sure that everyone in the country has access to broadband, and, and indeed the National Broadband Plan spent a lot of time on that. But here's what I don't think we should do. I don't think we should use universal service as an excuse not to innovate, not to get better. In other words, you know, we are where we are. We haven't really had a network, an announced network upgrade in several years, and I don't want to use universal service as a way of keeping everybody low. I do think that we need some communities to, um, uh, it, it troubles me that if you look at the fastest cities in the world, none of them are in the United States, because I think that's where innovation is going to come from. Well, I think this this reminds me of one of the responses I've had to your presentations in, in maybe three, four years ago, and sort of, and actually maybe even two years ago with the National Broadband Plan, where I was sort of furious that I was not able to respond in any sort of a manner. Um, uh-huh. Because, you know, I, I fully agree with you if one says, if you take the existing universal service framework or the Connect America Fund, you know, I would agree with you that we should not try to turn those into getting everyone a gig because those are broken programs that I quite frankly think are, are tremendously wasteful and don't result in the kind of networks that rural people need anyway. Um, I think that they're, they're programs that should be redesigned um, and we'll have that opportunity, I guess, with this discussion that we're having of how to do universal service. But um, the frustration I have is that, you know, when we look at how we electrified everyone by recognizing the power of co-op and nonprofit business models in areas of low density, we haven't learned that lesson again when it comes to telecom. We've totally forgotten it. And so, you know, I, I find myself agreeing with you that sort of if we have to deal with a Washington, D.C. program, then our universal service is probably going to waste a lot of money and be way more costly than it could be. But the alternative, um, an alternative, would be to have a good universal service program. Um, and so it's sort of um, it, it's a difficult argument to make that I'm sort of wandering around right now. Yeah, I, look, I think it's. Uh, I do think it's hard. Uh, I would note that um, I thought the FCC reform effort had a lot of good things um, uh, in it, uh, but I do not believe that it is a once-in-a-generation transformation of universal service. And part of the reason I, I don't believe that is that, in fact, universal service in rural America broadband is about to be transformed by AT&T and Verizon and Sprint and T-Mobile bringing um, 4G broadband, wireless broadband, into rural areas. I don't know how that will play out, but I think it will have a dramatic impact on some of the rural providers, particularly the co-ops, um, and that when that plays out, undoubtedly we're going to have to look at the system again. I might note that um, politically, I personally had a lot of debates with the rural folks, and I know they were not happy with some of the recommendations I had. I went to their convention and debated some of their members, and it was a lot of fun, and they were very, very gracious. Um, I don't think I convinced anyone I was right. I just think it was a good conversation. I would note um, they're actually uh, Gig.U, the Fiber to the Home Council, Google, uh, and the and the rural co-ops are all going to Kansas City. Uh, and Chris, I hope you'll be there as well um, right after Memorial Day to have what I think really is the nation's first con- conference on, um, I think where we're t- it's entitled From Gigabit Envy to Gigabit Deployment. And it's really to kind of bring bring together those folks who are trying to look at how can communities uh, control their destiny with this next upgrade. 
Yes, I'll be there. I'm looking forward to it. I can't miss uh, such a conference in the Midwest. It's uh-huh. it's nice to be remembered that uh, those of us living in flyover country uh, can host a conference. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> um, so let me let me just ask you as we as we move toward wrapping up here. Then, um, do you have any thoughts on the AT and T approach to the transition, this movement to IP? Um, well, first of all. One of the things that we identified in the plan was that the country had to um, move all of our networks to IP and and that the government currently was obligating certain providers to invest in the old TDM networks and that that, at some point that had to stop. It raises many, many difficult questions. I think that AT&T, which just filed a petition and asked for a couple of waivers to run some experiments in a couple of wire centers to the country of service by accelerating the FCC's attention on this uh, issue. And I and I hope that the FCC uh, lets them do the experiments because I'm a big believer in experimentation. Um, an experiment is really worth a thousand pleadings and I, uh, I would love to see what happens when you essentially um, uh, allow them to turn off the TDM network uh, in those wire centers. Uh, having said that, where I think the two things come together is at the end of the day, uh, as we talked about at the beginning, we have a certain kind of arrangement between the public needs and the private investors. And that, um, we, we have to work out a new agreement. We have to have an understanding of what is it that we can really ask the private sector to do. For example, 911 is not something that the private market would have come up with itself. The requirement of making sure the networks are sustainable um, in a storm may not be something that the private sector by itself would do. Making sure that every classroom is linked is not necessarily something that the private sector uh, would do. Indeed, it is a public sector <laughs> need. So there are a variety of things, particularly when you understand the economics of network deployment and how scale matters and things like that. So um, I think the the kind of efforts that you're talking about greatly inform and, and the efforts that frankly you're doing should greatly inform the FCC's effort to figure out what is the new paradigm uh, as we move to an all IT world. I I have to raise an objection just to I um the uh, AT&T experiments I've um you know I I've seen the rural groups recoil in horror and I have to agree with them to the extent that um I'm very much afraid of an experiment that AT&T would design. So to the extent that there are experiments, I really hope the FCC is very careful um, to make sure that we know what we're going to be learning and that we know what risks there are. Uh, look, I, I, I appreciate that. My, my view is slightly different, um, and, and I think we should be honest about it. I'm not worried about how AT&T designs it. I'm worried about how the FCC evaluates it. In other words, if they design an experiment that's fundamentally a Potemkin village, it's all fake, well, then it's the FCC's obligation to determine that it was fake, mm-hmm. right? But I, I, I really like experimentation. Um, I do think that um, having been lobbied a lot and having read lots of pleadings, um, and then it's very interesting to contrast the kind of analysis that I see at the FCC and the kind of analysis that I saw when I was an analyst on Wall Street. And there is a seriousness of purpose when we're talking about money <laughs> that I would like to see um, you know, at the FCC, but things there tend to get more theoretical. And so um, I, 
I agree there is a risk. And, and this is, you know, this is a constant tension between the way you look at the world and the way I do. There are certain risks I'm willing to take that you think are perhaps too risky and, and vice versa. But to me, the problem is not how 18 designs it, it's how the FCC evaluates it. And as long as we understand that, we'll get to a better place by having an experiment than we would if we simply had AT&T say, theoretically, if we just deregulate everything, everything will be fine. You're, well, I have to agree with you in terms of it's, it's up to the FCC. Um, our frustration has long been that with the size of the companies that we're seeing in the state of Washington, D.C., that it's somewhat hard to separate the FCC from the interests of the very powerful players, uh, which is honestly one of the major reasons that we support public ownership rather than regulation is uh, much like we're seeing with the banks. We're not convinced that there is actually regulation that can work under the present political environment. So, you know, we, we, we sort of recognize that there needs to be some regulation, even if it's broken. But fundamentally, we think it's smart for cities to figure out how they can make sure they're protecting themselves at the local level rather than relying on D.C. Yeah. Look, I, I appreciate what you're saying, and I think you've done a wonderful job uh, providing an analysis that supports that point of view. Where I think we disagree is I do have more faith in the markets. Um, and that's a function of a lot of different things. I mean, look, I, I look at what Google is doing in Kansas City, and I look at what's happening in Seattle, and I look at Chicago, and I'm I'm a little more optimistic. But, you know, I could be wrong. <laughs> so. No, and, I, you know, I, 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 to some extent, I'm always confused when someone suggests that I am not don't have faith in markets. And, um, you know, I'm someone who I've gone through a lot of opinions, um, and, and I've given things. One of the things people have always recognized about me is that I think about things, and I may change my mind, and maybe I change my mind more than others. Uh, because I am open. Um, you know, I went through a period where the only thing I could think about was how markets failed. And um, mm -hmm. But the more I learned about markets, the more I recognized the ways in which when they work, they're incredible and they're just unbeatable. But when I look at things like electricity and when I look at telecom, the incentives of a few players, often from Wall Street, to make sure that there is no market, to make sure that there are very few providers and that, the, and that there's basically an impossibility of new providers coming up, such that maybe a new provider will pop up, but they'll quickly be subsumed by some form of monopoly or duopoly. I, I quite frankly think that markets work wonders, but that we're not heading toward a market of broadband. I think we're heading um, toward increased consolidation. So uh, I'm, I'm curious what market you mean. Yeah, that, it's, a, it's a fair question. Um, but I, what I mean to be quite clear is that I think that private capital uh, will find a way to drive faster, cheaper, better broadband in the United States. How would you respond to me saying that it did that in Chattanooga because it was private capital um, funneled through, you know, bonds, um, bonds yeah. of the world, right? <laughs> right, right. Well, look, I, I, I thought it was perfectly fine what Chattanooga did. I had no problem with what Chattanooga did. But see, what I'd like to see is, you know, if if a community believes as Chattanooga believed that they weren't getting uh, that the existing providers weren't giving them all they wanted, or that there was someone who had a better opportunity to do it. Great. I'd love to see more utilities get into this uh, into this market because they obviously have a lot of assets that could be extremely valuable in producing faster, cheaper, better broadband. I, I maybe maybe we don't disagree in that sense. I just think that. Um, uh, I wouldn't recommend, I, you know, I, I, it's very easy for me to say that if I was in the state legislature, I would always vote against any bill that would restrict the city's ability to, to participate in any way in this market. That's a philosophical view. 
I think if I was on a city council, you know, you and I might find ourselves on opposite sides of the extent of that city participation. But it really depends on the particular, you know, the particular circumstance. When I read the story of Lafayette, I have a feeling that if I was on that city council, I would have voted to proceed as they proceeded. But they tried a long time <laughs> to get their folks, you know, to get the incumbents to do more. So I, uh, I think it's, uh, to me, it's case by case. The important thing at this moment in time for the country is to make sure, and, and this is really at the heart of Kick.U, that we have some communities that drive that next generation so other communities can see it, to see a real test bed in action. And so it's great what Chattanooga is doing. It's great what Kansas City is doing. It's great what Seattle is doing. Uh, it's great what Chicago is doing. It's great what the Research Triangle Park is doing. I think that if if I had written the chairman Chairman Janikowski's speech to the League of Mayors uh, or the Conference of Mayors, uh, I would have pointed to all of those places and saying, "You ought to have your people taking a look at those things. Do any of them work for you? Is there a different model that works for you?" Um, and you know, some cities, by the way, they may be perfectly happy with what they have today, and that's great. Uh, but I do think, as a country, to move forward, we have to make sure we have some of the fastest communities in the world in the United States. And I think we, we both agree there. I'm, one of the things people don't always realize is that um, I'm not an advocate for only a municipal monopoly. Um, I do see a continuing role for private sector investment and ownership of a network. I think most communities can support um, more than one. Um, in rural areas, I'd really like to see open access, publicly owned networks, but how we get there is a really troublesome question. Um, I think this has been a, a very helpful conversation. I really appreciate you taking all the time. Well, Chris, always a pleasure. Always a pleasure reading your stuff. Keep up the good work, even when we disagree. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Blair Levin, for taking the time to talk with us and sharing another approach at expanding connectivity. We encourage you to visit the project website at gig-u.org to learn more about how this program partners with research universities to advance innovation. You can also visit muninetworks.org and follow the gig.u tag to see our coverage. We want your questions or comments. Email us at podcast at muninetworks.org. Follow us on Twitter to learn all about the most recent developments relating to community networks, broadband policy, and telecommunications. Our handle is at communitynets. This show was released on March 12, 2013. Thanks to D. Charles Spear and the Helix for their song, Freddy's Lapels, licensed using Creative Commons.